Well, hey everybody, what's up? Pastor Matt here. Thanks for checking into the old YouTube channel. We're going to simultaneously record this one for audio on our podcast too. So don't forget that you can get our audio stuff, our sermons and whatnot. So if you go to any podcast feed, Spotify, Google Podcast, iTunes, whatever, just search for our name, Gospel Fellowship PCA. Well, hey, thanks for checking in. Uh, again, my name is Pastor Matthew Everhart. I'm the pastor of Gospel Fellowship PCA. We're a Reformed Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh. In western Pennsylvania, if you're looking for a Reformed church that teaches the Bible text by text, paragraph by paragraph, line by line, uh, with Reformed convictions and uh, traditional, beautiful, God-exalting worship, then uh, you found a place right here. Gospel Fellowship PCA, check us out. Our YouTube channel, uh, my YouTube channel, our website, all that stuff on the interweb. So uh, I'll trust you'll be able to find your way through. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to add to our series called The Reformed View, where on my YouTube channel, I've been creating a number of videos over time to essentially introduce people to Reformed theology. And my target audience here, as I think about this this um, this particular series of videos, is for those who maybe are kind of exploring the Reformed faith, maybe considering Presbyterianism. So for some of you, this is obviously just way too superficial, and you're, you're wanting to go deeper and deeper into the faith, especially into Reformed doctrine. Uh, for others of you, this is the perfect level of introductory material that you really need to help you understand what it means to be Reformed. That's why we're calling this series The Reformed View. So we've done all kinds of videos. We've done one on baptism and the Lord's Supper and our views on the end times and what we think about spiritual gifts and so on and so forth. And um, I was prompted to make this video this morning because I was looking at a um, one of the Bible groups online and somebody was asking about the Creeds and Confessions ESV Bible and uh, they said, what, what are the creeds and confessions? And I thought, oh, well, let me just link one of my Reformed View videos on this topic and answer their question for them through video. And then I looked through the series and realized I have not even made a Reformed View video on our use of creeds and confessions at all. So I immediately thought to myself, well, my goodness, I, I guess I better, I better get to this right away. So... Um, let's start off with the uh, the idea of what is a creed or a confession and why is it that we um, that we need them. I'm using two computers here this morning, one to record the video and one to record the audio. So bear with me, technologically speaking. Um, I want to I want to share a story with you really quickly here as we begin, going back to my time at Faith Church when I was the pastor of Faith Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Brooksville, Florida. Something strange had happened. We'd had a visitor come one day, and as part of our regular worship service, we always said either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, just as part of our liturgy. And uh, there was a new visitor one day and didn't know where it was found, and so one of our elders, uh, very appropriately, reached for the hymnal to turn to page 716, I think it was, and help them find the Apostles' Creed, because a lot of us had it memorized by heart, and this person didn't know what we were doing coming from a non-creedal or confessional church. And so he helped her find the page, and sure enough, opens up the hymnal, it's not there. Somebody ripped it out. Somebody literally ripped out the Apostles' Creed. So what would you do? Well, he grabbed the next hymnal over and turned to page 716. Sure enough, it's gone from there too. This poor elder, uh, trying to help this person through our liturgy, realized that somebody had torn out the Apostles' Creed in every single one of the hymnals in that entire row. And um, thought that was strange, of course. It was strange. And upon further reflection and analysis, we realized that somebody had torn out somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 12 to 15 hymnals, torn out the creeds, 
in that particular seating section of the church. And so we were kind of at a loss for why anyone would do that. The best thing that we could come up with is one of the reasons that many people are still against the use of creeds and confessions in the church. And that is to say that they're concerned that somehow by using a non-scriptural element for part of the liturgy of the worship itself, uh, that we have uh, done an injustice to historic Bible-believing Christianity, that somehow we've done something wrong in using words that are not themselves found directly in the scriptures. Um, but that's going to be a problem for us, because then how else do we sing hymns? How else do we sing songs? How else do we even have a sermon or books or devotional materials? In fact, we as Christians use the scripturated words, the inspired, inerrant, infallible words of God all the time. In fact, we base our worship services on the inspired and infallible word. But in order to even meet together, to give greetings, uh, to say prayers and other things like that, even to have any kind of sermon on the scripture, of course, we have to make comment on the meaning of the scripture itself. And so probably this idea of anti-confessionalism or anti-creedalism which is uh, part of the warp and woof of, of many evangelical churches. They just don't use the creeds or confessions or find any necessity or practical usage for them. Um, this anti-creedalism probably comes from three concerns. First of all, they're concerned in some way that we're adding to Scripture, that we're somehow declaring that these creeds and confessions are equal to the Scriptures in authority, um, or that somehow we are too highly exalting the words of men. Now, at first blush, of course, is are very good concerns because as Reformed believers, Protestants and uh, evangelicals, even generically, we hold to a doctrine called sola scriptura, which comes out of the days of the Reformation, in which the Protestants, especially in Reformed Protestants in particular, declared that our ultimate standard of truth and authority is only going to be the scriptures. And so the scriptures are going to be on the highest level of plane for the authority for what we teach and for what we believe and for how we practice. Now, obviously, that is a, a counteraction to the medieval Roman Catholic Church, who had other streams of authority, especially and including the authority of the church and in the Pope in particular. So when we say we're sola scriptura, we are protesting, we are responding, we are reacting to Roman Catholic um, two-stream author authoritarianism, the stream of the Pope and his decrees and the stream of Scripture, which, of course, unfortunately, as the Protestants uh, realized, whenever those two things come into conflict, well, the Pope is going to win because he has the authoritative power to interpret the Holy Scriptures. The Protestants, Protestants said, no, none of that. We are going to be sola scriptura, which means in any religious controversy whatsoever, we're going to default to the sole authority of the scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't read other books. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't listen to sermons. It doesn't mean that we don't read devotionals or say prayers that are extemporized. Um, but that scripture is our ultimate and final authority. So even those of our churches who do hold to the use of creeds and confessions, we can still hold to sola scriptura. And that is because... We call the creeds and the confessions, rightly so, our subordinate standards. In other words, they, the creeds and the confessions, need to kneel down and honor the word of God. And as much as they don't do that, then of course we reject them or revise them or set them aside for another day. Um, but everything we do, believe, say, preach, uh, pray, sing, it should all be 
in accordance with the final and ultimate authority of Scripture. So no questions there. Um, now, there is a need, though, to have some sort of creeds and confessions within our churches, and I'll give you several reasons why. First of all, we have to be able to articulate what it is we actually believe, and we have to do so in relatively brief form. In other words, we're not giving a summary of what we believe, but we're stating all of it. So I know this is a bit of a silly example, but let's say um, somebody comes into our churches and they say, hey, you guys are PCA. Cool. What do you believe? Well, uh, one of the things I could do to explain what we believe is I could simply open my Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and begin reading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and so on. I could read all the way uh, through the Pentateuch and the prophets and the Gospels and the epistles. I could come all the way to the book of Revelation and um, 72 hours later, I could have told them everything that we believe because what we believe is, of course, Scripture. But... There's a real obvious practical necessity to be able to summarize what it is that we actually believe, and so we find that the creeds and the confessions are very, very helpful to do so. And the question is, how brief do you want it to be? Well, if you want it to be so brief that you can uh, recite it together by memory, then maybe something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed might be an appropriate length. If, however, you want something far more nuanced than that, that talks about many more heads of doctrine, then maybe we need something more like the Westminster Confession of Faith, which has 33 chapters and tons and tons of scriptural references to show, nevertheless, where we draw those uh, doctrines from. So not only is there a need for us to be able to be brief in some regard with explaining what it is we believe, but we also have to be clear. And this is where um, we run into the problem of virtually every branch of Christianity would could do the same thing. They could begin at Genesis 1 and read all the way to the end of Revelation and say that we believe the same things. But the, the practical reality is um, that's not true. We don't believe the same things. We are not medieval Roman Catholics nor are we um, Pentecostal Charismatics, nor are we of the United Methodist Church or some sort of liberal, progressive, humanistic offshoot of Christianity, nor are we part of the cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Now, that brings up an interesting dilemma because a, a Jehovah's Witness could also read you the whole of Scripture, 72 hours worth of reading out loud, and say that's what we believe. But at the end of the day, um, that's not really honest, and so um, that's going to be a problem for us because we believe very different things than the Jehovah's Witnesses to do. And so there is a need to be able to briefly and clearly and honestly articulate what it is our churches believe as over against other churches and how we're different. Some churches we consider to be on our team, so to speak, but we're still different from them in some ways. And other um, groups or cults or offshoots we don't consider to be on our team because we're actually competing for the hearts and minds of those people. And so we need to have some sort of summary statements that can draw lines. And so this does two things for us. First of all, it enables us to have unity. And second of all, it needs it enables us to make proper divisions. Okay. Now, unity is a very good thing. Christ prayed for that, of course, at the high priestly prayer in John 17. There is an urgent, indefinite necessity within Christendom to have unity between churches. But unity can function on different levels. Um, we, can, we can work together in cooperative endeavors like homeless shelters and work against the evils of abortion and those kinds of things. And yet we may actually disagree on who to baptize or who can participate in the Lord's Supper 
or what a proper soteriology looks like. And so in one sense, the creeds can unify us. They can cause us to rally together and join forces with like-minded churches, even churches that are in different denominations than us. Yet at the same time, um, we also need to have creeds and confessions because they do, they do draw divisive lines between us and the cults or us and the churches that have, unfortunately, very deformed views of doctrine. In our view, the Roman Catholic Church would be one such example that does not have a good view of how salvation works or who Mary is or the authority of men on this earth in, in juxtaposition to the authority of Christ. So we do need to draw some fences. And in this way... We might say that good fences make good neighbors, and that's probably true. Um, in your neighborhood, you may have a fence in your yard, and it's not because you're the uh, the hostile enemy of your neighbor, but they simply demarcate where one property ends and another property begins. Now, your fences may have gates, and so there may be some passing back and forth between the two. Uh, you kick the ball over the yard, you open up the gate, you go into their yard and go get it, or uh, you bring a meal over when they're sick. All those kinds of things are appropriate and necessary. But the creeds and confessions lay down proper fences and boundary lines for us so that our churches can function together actually in better harmony than we would if we were not really honest about what it is that we actually believe. Now, some people will say that summarizing biblical truth is in itself a problem, but I don't believe that that's a problem at all because the Bible itself has summary statements of what it teaches. And so when we look to the scriptures themselves, both in the Old and in the New Testaments, we can find passages that become summary statements of what uh, either the, the Jews in the Old Testament or the Christians in the New Testament believed. So by way of several examples here, and let me just tick them off, Deuteronomy 6, a great passage called the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is a passage that is a summary statement of what um, the Jews believe. That is, that they were monotheists who uh, worshipped Jehovah God or Yahweh God, the only true and living God. And every time that they would worship, they would say something like that because it would declare who they are. And so that becomes a proto-creed. Uh, it's a biblical creed, of course, because it's right out of Scripture but a proto-creed or confession nonetheless. And we see the same thing happening in the New Testament. By the way, in the Old Testament, uh, Exodus 34, uh, there's a passage about the Lord and his steadfast love enduring forever to generations and whatnot. That passage is quoted a number of times throughout the Old Testament, and so it becomes sort of a summary creedal confession, as do the Ten Commandments in all frankness. Uh, there's a summary of the moral implications of following uh, the Jehovah God, the Lord God, uh, but it is nevertheless a summary statement of what the Old Testament in large, uh, writ large, teaches about Christian morality or faithful morality. Now, in the, in the New Testament, um, one of the earliest forms of a confessional statement is that Jesus is Lord. It's a very short statement, just a few words even, but it nevertheless drew a proper line between those who were Christians and those who were not, whether those would be Jews or the pagans. And so Christ as Lord became even an early baptismal statement of, of uh, a confessional or creedal belief, and we see that, for instance, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. We also see something called the Carmen Christi in Philippians 2, 6 to 11. Uh, it's a song, apparently, that um, because of its stylistic conventions, it talks about the incarnation of Christ, that he is the Lord God, and yet at the same time he took on human flesh, and that one day every knee and tongue will bow to him. And then even in Paul's letters, we begin to see some statements that have a little bit, um, a little bit of what appears to be some kind of confessional use within early church Christian worship services. So, for instance, 
we see these trustworthy sayings in Paul's letter to Timothy, and there are several of them. There's one in Titus, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, Paul would say something like this, this saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we were faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, that's a saying that Paul says is a trustworthy saying. In other words, you can use this when you gather together to worship and to pray. You can use this as a, as a confessional statement to declare in short form what it is Christians believe. Now, obviously, a lot more could be said about what Christians believe. But here's another one in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, this is an interesting one because this one begins to look a little bit like the Apostles' Creed. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, Great indeed we confess, notice the language of a plurality of confession here, believers doing this together, is the mystery of godliness. He, or some manuscripts actually say God, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so there we have a statement about uh, the incarnate God, who is the Lord Christ, the second person of the Trinity, taking on flesh, uh, being proclaimed throughout the world, that's the Great Commission, of course, and being taken up in glory, that's his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he currently reigns and rules. And so uh, the Bible itself has summary statements of some sort of a creedal or confessional um, usage. Of course, all... Every line of scripture, every jot and tittle is, is authoritative, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and so we can use them uh, to make our creeds and confessions, even combining different passages together. Um, but what happened over time is, of course, Christians began to see the need to further and further refine and define their faith so as to make sure that they were taking a stand against the paganism of their day as well as to defend themselves against what, what became an increasing number of heretical cults. And already in the first, second, and third centuries, we began to see a number of um, Christian-derived cults that were growing up uh, in, for instance, the Gnostic cult or the Docetist heresy, these sorts of things. They looked Christian on the outside, but Christians began to see the need to create more and more precise statements to define uh, how they were biblical Christians and how they were not like those early cults. And so throughout the centuries and the generations, um, Christians, and especially Protestant Christians, have been creed makers or confession writers. And so we have everything from the more ancient creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Creed, and Athanasian Creed, um, to the more modern confessions in the Reformation era, which we'll get to here in just a second. But I do want to mention that uh, the difference between a creed and a confession, just by way of definition, is that the creeds are those shorter statements, they tend to be more Trinitarian or Christological, um, that almost every branch of Christendom holds to. So that would include you know, your Protestants, that would include your Calvinists and Arminians, that would even include your Roman Catholics, your Orthodox, your Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, they agree together in these creedal formulations such as the Nicene Creed. Now, there are a couple of instances where we may quibble about a word or two, and there's been some controversies about whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeds from only the Father or from the Father and the Son. But nevertheless, the creeds have the beauty and beneficial designation of being those shorter Trinitarian statements that really do hold together the whole of uh, Christ Church, and if you don't subscribe to those creeds, it really does bring into question whether or not your group uh, sect 
Bible study, whatever, has become a cult if you can't subscribe to those because all Christians everywhere agree on these things. Now, in the area of the Reformation, of course, we have some major controversies about what authority is, going back to the Sola Scriptura controversy. And this is where we begin to see a proliferation of longer, more defined confessional statements, such as our Westminster Confession of Faith, Heidelberg Confession, the Scots Confession, the Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confession, the Helvetic, which means Swiss Confessions, 39 Articles of the English Church, and of course the Augsburg Confession of the Lutherans. A lot of those have to do with a national sovereign territory, and you're going to notice there, even in the naming off of several of those confessions, that they're regionalized because they are for the church in that nation. Don't forget that we here in America, we don't have an official denomination of the United States of America, but many of the European nations do or did back in the days of the Reformation. And so you would see regionalized confessions like the Scots Confession, which is obviously for Scotland, or the Belgic Confession, which is obviously for Belgium, and the English Confessions, of course. Okay, so uh, well, what brings about the writing of a new confession or creed? Well, here I'm going to give to you the four C's for how a creed or a confession is usually written because there are some hallmarks in history of when a new statement is drawn up. Um, and the four, C's, the four C's are crisis, controversy, a need for clarity, or, in the most beautiful of occasions, conciliation, when groups actually want to uh, work together again that were once fractured or separated from one another, and that's a beautiful thing when it happens. Uh, a lot of times, though, it's crisis, and that's the case for the very early creeds, like the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed, of course, uh, those were written because of a response to the Arian crisis or uh, the Christological crises of the early uh, first few centuries of the church. Much debate about who Jesus was. Was he a created being as Arius held to, or was he in fact the second person of the Trinity as the church would later agree upon? Well, we needed some sort of statements to agree on these things, and so some of the creeds are uh, based on those topics. The Heidelberg Confession is a Reformed Confession, 1563. It's interesting because it was one of the few confessions drawn up to actually bring about conciliation, which is uh, unity. And so during the time of the Reformation, um, because of linguistic boundaries, you have a bunch of groups of nations in Europe that spoke different languages. Uh, that's why some of the fracturing in the Protestant church happened, just because they were speaking different languages, uh, working with different forms of civil government. But there was a, an apparent need to try to reconcile the Lutheran branch of Protestantism, which was largely German, and the Reformed branch of Protestantism, which was largely Swiss um, and other, and other um, to try to get those together. So the Heidelberg Confession was an attempt to try to reconcile those parties now. Ultimately, uh, it was unsuccessful in that regard, but there was a real beauty there in the attempt to do so. We have also the Synod of Dort, which would be an example of a confession coming about because of a need of clarity with the Arminian controversy. Um, what do we say about the, the remonstrance or the five points of contention of those who followed Jacob Arminius as over against most of the rest of the Protestants, which were more um, reformed, I hate to say the word, but Calvinistic uh, in their doctrine. I try not to use the word Calvinism too much because it's just so controversial, though obviously I'm a Calvinist as a Westminsterian subscribing member of the PCA. All right, so, well, let's uh, narrow down on one such example of a confession. Of course, I'll choose my favorite confession, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith as an example. 
Uh, here's a nice hardbound copy of the Westminster. I've done a review of this edition before, so if you're interested in grabbing one of these, I'll post a link in the description of this video. But the Westminster Confession is considered by many people one of the most beautiful and majestic and regal of the Reformed era confessions of faith. Now, what brought about its writing? Well, unfortunately, this is an era in which you had a civil war breaking out. And in this case, it was the king going up against the parliaments of the kingdom of England. There used to be a day where I could never imagine how the king would actually go to war with his own parliament. But now, living in America today, I could easily see a scenario in which the president goes to battle with Congress or something like that. But that actually happened in, the Eng in England in the 1640s, the English Civil War. And uh, so for temporarily, parliaments, which, le which leaned more um, reformed or Presbyterian in their views, went against the king in actual conflict, armed conflict, in which the king leaned more towards Anglicanism, of course, because Anglicanism has a bishopric of authority, whereas Presbyterianism is representative authority. The king, of course, would like more of a hierarchical system so that he could control it. Parliament, as you might guess, want more of a regionalized or representative form of government. And there were some doctrinal issues in there as well. So what happened in 1643 is that Parliament, um, who was winning the war and actually deposed the king, um, they entered into a solemn league and covenant with Scotland so that they would agree to try to unify their doctrinal stance with one another. Scotland and England coming into a full agreement. Uh, perhaps I Ireland as well could come into this agreement. And so um, the Westminster Confession of Faith missed a good opportunity to be called the Confession of the Three Kingdoms, which would have been awesome in my view, England, Scotland, and Ireland. But the idea of the Solemn League and, Co and Covenant in 1643 was that the English Parliament would agree with Scotland to abide by the results of an assembly of divines, which would be gathered together at Westminster to draw up a new confessional Standard And so what they did is actually pretty cool. They summoned all of the best theologians and all of the, the most learned pastors to an assembly. And they there uh, sought together with much prayer and study of scripture to hammer out a statement that could from then on become the official statement of a reformed or Presbyterian leaning England. Now, ultimately, England is going to go back to the Anglican church. Duh, that's what Anglican means. Uh, more of a bishopric-oriented hierarchical church, much more like the Roman Catholic Church than what they came up with at West Westminster. But nevertheless, the uh, the results of Westminster Assembly are fantastic. So here's what you had. You had 151 representatives, and that included ministers, and those ministers were diverse. There were some that leaned Anglican, there were some that leaned Presbyterian, there were some that leaned Independent, and they invited the Scots to send a delegation to Westminster Assembly as well. And there were also some laypersons, 20 uh, members of the House of Commons, and 10 landowners, and so this assembly met essentially for years. Uh, you think your meetings are long, or your committees are a little bit overbearing, and uh, yeah, some session meetings go along a little bit too long, right? But this meeting actually last, lasted for years. And so for a number of meetings, I forget how many meetings they had. It's an interesting statistic, though. But between 1643 and 1648, 
they together, the best divines and pastors of the land, hammered out this confessional statement. So it'd be kind of like today if we summoned all the best and most respected pastors in our context to come together to write up a statement. So let's just imagine... Just being creative here, if Sproul was still alive and we could get MacArthur from California and John Piper could come over from Minneapolis and whoever else you think is cool, Tim Keller, I don't know. I don't know who you like. Wouldn't be me because uh, I'm a nobody. But if we got the best divines and we put them together for years and they got together to work on this statement, that's essentially what the Westminster Confession of Faith was. And so the goals of the confession as originally conceived was to do three things. To clarify the Church of England's doctrine and government under the parliamentarian, Presbyterian leading Reformed Orthodoxy. Second, to try to unite England, Scotland, and Ireland together so that they had the same articles of confessional standard. Ireland, by the way, had the, Eng or the Irish articles, which they actually used as a starting place. Originally, they thought about revising the 39 articles from the Church of England under the king, but uh, once they began, they realized, now we've got to start from scratch. And then the third goal, of course, was to strengthen their reputation with those on the continent. In other words... Uh, England didn't have a great um, reputation as being very reformed, like the Dutch or those from the Netherlands or the Swiss or some of the German reformed. They wanted to kind of up their game, so to speak, and bring it into greater conformity with some of the earlier confessions that had been written. So what did they come up with? Well, the assembly, after several years of meetings and tons of subgroups and subcommittees and uh, main body assembly meetings, they produced a document that contains 33 chapters. Um, so that's the main confession of faith. They also came up with some other stuff that's pretty interesting too. They came up with a shorter catechism of 107 questions and a larger catechism of 196 questions. And those were essentially for the purpose of training children with the shorter catechism and training ministers and heads of household, which would be the larger catechism. Now, not only that, but they came up with a couple other things that aren't in use so much anymore, but they came up with a directory of public worship, which is essentially a guide for how churches should uh, carry on worship services. This was noticeably less restrictive than the Book of Common Prayer of the English church. In fact, in some ways, it was a response against the Book of Common Prayer. And they also came up with a, a form of church government, a, a, essentially a book of church order. In the PCA today, we have the BCO, we call it. In the EPC, we used to call it just the book of order. Uh, but they came up with an order for how it is that you ordain ministers and all these sorts of things. So the Westminster Assembly came up with these five documents. Now, what is an outline for those of you who are new to the Westminster Confession or other confessions? Well, the Westminster goes through five basic categories, but it has a lot of other subcategories underneath. The first five chapters or so really talk about God as the sovereign creator. Uh, the next five or so chapters talk about sin and the Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have a lot about soteriology, how it is that we're saved. Grace and salvation, especially in the Ordo Salutis in chapters 11 to 17. And then we get into a large section on the church and worship, proper worship, including the church's relationship to the state, according, uh, um, including such things as how baptism ought to be uh, conceived, as well as the Lord's Supper. And then finally, with the restoration of all things, in other words, a short statement on the end times in chapters 32 and 33, the return of Christ and other such important matters. 
Now, if you're asking which churches use the Westminster Confession of Faith today or other confessions, well, most Presbyterian churches still do, of course. And so I'm in the PCA. Um, our brothers and sisters in the, in the excuse me, the OPC use, use the Westminster, as does the ARP and our friends in the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. Uh, those churches I just mentioned are all in a, a confederation called NAPARC together, so that's cool. But then some other churches that are not in NAPARC, such as the EPC, my former denomination, the PCI, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, the Church of Scotland, the Free Church of Scotland, etc., are still using the Westminster Confession of Faith, and so it still does have a very excellent reputation, I'm checking the time here, um, for use within Reformed circles. Now, there's a great amount of disagreement as, as to how much authority the Confession has in our daily lives, but we all agree, and we should make this very, very clear here, that the Westminster Confession of Faith never claims to be equal to Scripture. So don't listen to anybody that says it does. Obviously, it doesn't. Just read chapter 1 and chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession. It makes very and abundantly clear that all confessions and creeds are subordinate to the Bible itself. Now, there were a couple of interesting modifications to the Westminster Confession that are worthy of note. The Congregationalist churches modified it slightly in a document called the Savoy Declaration of 1658, so we're talking about 10 years later. Um, Congregationalists like John Owen had a hand in that process. And then in 1689, some of you Baptists may perk uh, alive here, the London Baptist Confession also revised the Westminster Confession of Faith on several important chapters, of course, including baptism. So the Westminster is a very important confessional statement because it influenced not only the Presbyterian movement, uh, but also the Congregationalist movement and even the early Baptist movement. And for those of you Baptists who aren't aware, you should be aware that uh, the Baptist movement is actually a, um, well, it's a strongly Calvinistic movement. It has Calvinistic foundation, Reformed foundations, broadly defined. Okay, so what are the uses of confessions today? Some of you may ask that question. I think we'll have to end here for the sake of time. Well, first of all, there is a devotional use to the confessions. You can read them devotionally, even as they lead you into the scriptures themselves. Now, again, we're not claiming that they're equal to scripture. Of course, if you're going to read anything, read your Bible. Okay, you heard me say that, right? Read your Bible. Um, but we use other books for devotional purposes. Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, for instance, or The Valley of Vision. And so there's nothing wrong with using books devotionally, especially as they help us to understand the scriptures. And I think using the confessions actually do that. They help us to understand the scriptures. If you're new to this entire concept, a couple of years ago I wrote a book called Hold Fast the Faith, a devotional commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. And this may be a very good place for you to start in understanding what the confession is, what kinds of materials are in here, and how to use the confession in a devotional manner. So I'll post a link to this in the description of the video as well. Um, we can use it for more formalized forms of study within co Bible colleges, seminaries. We can teach through Christian doctrine using the formulations that are there in the confessions. We can use them for teaching in the church. Now, I've never just done a straight-up study of the confession uh, in church, but I have used it many, many times to clarify a doctrinal point. So, for instance, if I'm talking about a factual call, I may pause and say, now, hold on, I know a lot of you uh, may not have heard the term effectual call, but let me just define that for you. And then I'll pull open the Westminster Confession and define it. 
Uh, same thing with terms like sanctification or the means of grace or, or the Sabbath or something like that. I may go to the confession to use to define my terms. And there's such incredible definitions, especially in the catechisms, that it'll greatly aid your teaching. Um, for catechetical purposes, we can use these things to teach our children. Uh, my older two children, we did a Bible catechism where we just did scripture memory, 150 of the most important Bible questions for scripture, because that's what my church was doing at that time. With my youngest child, we were actually memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and uh, my daughter and I were up to about question 40, memorizing these things together, and then we have another person from our church, a Sunday school teacher, perhaps, that uh, tests the child to make sure that they're learning them. Then we have prizes and things like that. Um, we use the confessions for ordination, and this is very important because if you're going to ordain a new pastor or receive a pastor by way of transfer, you're going to want to make sure that their doctrine is in accordance with what your church actually believes. And so when we ordain ministers or receive them by transfer, we ask them a ton of questions about their views on the confession. It's just very helpful to find out where they stand on the most important doctrinal issues. Uh, we can use them in liturgy. Uh, sometimes we'll use them as short statements summarizing what it is that Christians believe. Um, we use the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, but sometimes I'll use a question or two from the Westminster Catechisms. And then finally, of course, and this is a very important use, we can use them for the sake of discipline. Now, discipline is not my favorite topic, and it's probably not yours either, but whenever we have the rare case that a minister begins to teach something that isn't in accord with our views then we can actually test their writings or their preachings against the confession, and we can actually ask them if they uh, are deviating from the confession on certain points, and then we, we can know whether or not any disciplinary measures need to take place by way of follow-up. Okay, well, that's it for today. Uh, this is a bit of a longer video. Sorry about that, but it's part of the Reform View series. I hope you found this to be helpful. Again, don't forget, I'll put some links in the description of this video, uh, links to the hardback edition of the Westminster Confession, as well as a link to my devotional commentary on the Westminster Confession may be helpful. Hey, if you think my Edwards shirt is pretty cool here, got my Jonathan Edwards book coming out uh, right about now. I got a good update that my book on Edwards' resolutions is, in fact, being shipped out to people's homes as we speak, and so it might be a good time for you to grab yourself a, uh, a resolved t-shirt or hoodie like this. Uh, but anyways, all that stuff's in the description. Probably the most important thing I can say as we end here is that uh, I love you lots, and I'm very thankful for, for all of my subscribers and my viewers here on this channel. Uh, I say that because I mean it. I'm very thankful for each and every one of you, and I hope to see you again next time. So we'll talk to you later.